Magic Johnson had a bird's eye view of the celebration from his high-rise hotel room overlooking the Boston Public Garden. And it was killing him. He sobbed as he watched delirious Celtics fans partying in the streets below, donning shamrock jerseys and waving garish green banners, chanting the name of his arch-rival, Larry Bird. One hour earlier, Bird had stood on a podium, his blonde hair tousled, and triumphantly held the championship trophy, and then the finals MVP trophy, aloft. The Lakers led 2-1 to one in that series, and a championship would have been Magic's third in just five years. A veritable dynasty already secured. It also would have given Magic the indisputable upper hand in his rivalry with Bird. Instead, the Lakers wilted under the bruising physical play of the Celtics and the suffocating heat of the Boston Garden. The enduring images of the Lakers' woes mostly centered on magic. It was a low-light reel of stunning miscues. Errant passes, shot clock violations, and missed free throws that pinned him with the derisive nickname Tragic and his team with the moniker The Fakers. Without a charter plane to whisk him back to Los Angeles, as today's players would have done, Magic was forced to spend the night in Boston reliving those mistakes and marinating in the misery of knowing that Bird had seized the momentum in their ongoing tussle for league supremacy. Magic was not alone that night. Two of his closest friends, Mark Aguirre from the Dallas Mavericks and Detroit Pistons star Isaiah Thomas stayed with him in his Boston suite. Isaiah vividly remembers Magic's anguish. i never forget that night where he laying, I mean, literally, you know, in the bed, just boo-hooing, crying. Mark and I, you know, we were in the room and we were just sitting there. We had never seen Magic Johnson fail. Aguirre and Isaiah tried to be creative in their efforts to distract Magic, ordering opulent room service and cranking his favorite Motown tunes to drown out the crowd noise but their efforts were futile. Nothing would soothe magic. Aguirre told me all about it. I think the biggest thing is um, that came out of it was how hard the pain was. You know, the pain was hard, you know, and uh, we saw our friend totally committed to doing what he had to do in order to be in the championship. So. It was sad, but, you know, it was another thing that you had to learn, you know, and, I mean, we didn't know what to do. While Magic was holed up in his hotel, a giddy bird was downtown at a local watering hole celebrating with his teammates. He had lost the 1979 college championship to Magic as a senior and had been pining for an opportunity to even the score ever since. As he clinked glasses with teammate Quinn Buckner, Larry declared, I finally got magic. To Bird, the notion of sharing a hotel room with players from other teams was unfathomable. He looked straight through opponents as if they weren't there. If he was to be accepted among the league's greats, he planned to earn that distinction on his own without any outside assistance. It was one of the many contrasting methods of these two NBA linchpins who, much like Wilt and Russell, were so intertwined that it was a zero-sum game. Success for one meant heartbreak for the other. 
Their compelling clashes would come to define the NBA in the 80s, transforming a league struggling to establish its financial footing into one of America's most exciting and profitable sports leagues. Game 7 of the finals generated a 19.3 Nielsen rating, the highest ever at the time, more than 50% higher than the Sixers-Lakers final the year before. People loved this rivalry. And I'm not talking about Celtics versus Lakers. I'm talking about Larry versus Magic. The icons of the 80s weren't buddies like they are today. Magic and Larry didn't have time to dispense advice to young bucks on the rise. They were too busy plotting ways to annihilate one another while further raising the ceiling for NBA legends. I'm Jackie McMullen. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. Episode 3, Magic and Larry. Remember, when these two met before, in 1979, it was a ratings bonanza. Magic's Michigan State versus Bird's undefeated Indiana State for the NCAA title. The game is still, 43 years later, the highest-rated basketball game ever. Indiana State was an unlikely finalist, unranked in preseason and not even favored to win its conference until Bird launched them out of obscurity with his prolific scoring. Magic once told me that until he actually saw Bird on the cover of Sports Illustrated, he assumed he was black. The two lifelong rivals met first, curiously, as teammates in the summer of 1978. They were invited to play in a made-for-TV round-robin called the World Invitational Tournament, but their coach, Joe B. Hall of Kentucky, favored his own players. He relegated Bird and Magic to the second team, where they routinely embarrassed the starters in practice, throwing deft no-look passes all over the court. Magic, the youngest on the team, was the bubbly one who regaled everyone on the bus rides with his own renditions of the Ohio players. Bird, on the other hand, barely spoke, preferring to silently look out the window at the Midwestern countryside. A year later, at the press conference in advance of the 1979 NCAA championship game, Magic moved toward Larry expecting to share a warm embrace with a fellow former teammate. Instead, Bird sidestepped him and took his seat on the dais. Magic, stung by the snub, vowed to make him pay on the court. Michigan State won easily, behind 24 points from Magic. Bird scored 19, but was 7 for 21 from the floor, and even worse, Five of eight from the free throw line. Number one, but only one can make it. And Larry Bird, a great star, congratulates the Vickers. Urban Johnson leads his Michigan State team to the final score, 75-64. Larry took the loss hard. He felt he had let down the entire Indiana State community. So much so that when the Celtics won the championship in 1984 over Magic, he gave a shout-out to the town. This one's for Terre Haute. In the late 70s, college basketball was more popular than the NBA, and the NCAA was fiercely protective of its brand. So much so that they forbid announcers broadcasting their games to even mention the other basketball league. 
But when Magic bounded into the NBA, he was impossible to ignore. His Lakers teammates nicknamed him Buck because he pranced around like a young deer. He disarmed dour veterans by doling out high fives after the most mundane of plays. He ambled onto the bus with a gigantic boombox blaring the temptations. In his first NBA game, when Kareem hit a game winner at the buzzer, Magic leapt into the big man's arms. Slow down, Jabbar deadpanned. We've got 81 games to go. But Magic only knew one speed, fast. Former teammate Michael Thompson said his enthusiasm was contagious. Obviously, we all know about his talent, but he had such a desire to win, and he was so good with communicating with people and uh, building relationships with his teammates. Yeah, he was uh, demanding, but uh, he didn't rub people the wrong way because of his great leadership skills. I love being around him. Magic was the opposite of the reticent Kareem, who was a living legend who had already won three NCAA championships and five NBA MVP trophies. His skyhook was universally regarded as the most lethal shot in the game. Magic paid the proper respect, dutifully bringing the laconic Kareem his morning paper and his afternoon hot dog. But Magic couldn't stifle his own exuberance. While Kareem strode past hopeful fans, head bowed, Magic stopped, waved, and immersed himself in the crowd. It was, according to his teammate Byron Scott, a vast departure from the norm. You just didn't have a whole lot of superstars at that time that would allow people to come up and say hello to him, shake their hands, talk to him, you know, give him an autograph or take a picture. Everybody was so standoffish. And Urban was the one that came along that was smiling on the court, just seemingly having so much fun playing the game of basketball and um, just enjoying life. But, warns Thompson, don't be fooled by that magnetic grin. You know, he was smiling stuff, but he wasn't your friend when the game was going on. He wanted to destroy you. He wanted to crush you, just like Jordan did, just like Kobe did, just like Bill Russell. Bird possessed the same killer instinct. Nicknamed the Hick from French Lick, he was a no-frill star with a grinding work ethic that enabled him to compensate for his lack of quickness and leaping ability. He was the quintessential do-it-yourself farm boy who didn't care for limousines, glitzy parties, or fancy martinis. A six-pack in his garage would do. In fact, his chronic back problems have been traced to an injury when he was shoveling crushed rock to make a driveway for his mom's Indiana home. When Celtic czar Red Arback drafted Bird as a junior eligible player in 1978, then agreed to wait an entire year to secure his services. The rest of the Boston roster scratched their heads. Former Celtic ML Carr admits they had their doubts. Who is Larry Bird? Who in the world is Larry Bird? Uh, what did Red know? Was Red losing it at the time? But Bird won over his skeptical teammates in his first training camp by hurling his body towards loose balls on outdoor courts and snaring rebounds in traffic. Veteran Cedric Maxwell needled the rookie, christening him the Great White Hope. Bird said nothing. He didn't have to, says ML Carr, because his game spoke volumes. The most amazing thing that I'd seen in professional sports or college sport was the passing ability of a guy the size of this white kid from Indiana. We couldn't believe it. Bird kept largely to himself. When he was invited to a team dinner held at a steakhouse in the city, he begged off. His excuse? He needed to mow the lawn. 
But as Bird's NBA career advanced and his resume took shape, he unleashed his legendary verbal barbs. Hall of Famer Charles Barkley shared with me one exchange that was particularly memorable. I tell you, I was playing against uh, the Celtics earlier in my career, and Bird is like, Charles, I need to talk to you. I'm like, what's going on, LB? He says, y'all are being disrespectful to me. I'm like, why? He says, y'all actually putting a white guy on me. I'm like, what? Because it was in the heat of the moment. He says, y'all being disrespectful to me. Y'all know a white guy can't guard me. And I've only had two players say that, Jackie. Michael Jordan said that to me. He says, yo, man, when we played him in the finals, he's like, Chuck, Dan Marley's guarding me. I'm like, yeah, he's our best defender. He says, Charles, a white guy can't guard me. Y'all better cut that bullshit out. And you just got to laugh when you hear it. Jordan was drawn to Bird because of his acumen, his gall, and his basketball IQ. But of course, he never told Bird that. To him, that would have been a sign of weakness. I get so many questions about Larry Bird. And, and, and the thing is, is, was he really that good? I say, yeah, he was really that good. White, black, green, and yellow. He was really that good. When you see a, a player like Luca and you see a player like Dirk, they were great players. But they're not Larry Bird. By no means. And you have to have a great appreciation to play against a guy who athletically every single night, he was at a disadvantage, but yet mentally and in, in, in the way that his work ethic was, he was way above the game. He was way above everybody else. Burden Magic's first pro meeting was in December of 1979. They didn't bother to exchange pleasantries before tip-off. The Celtics and Lakers had a long combative history dating back to the 60s, which routinely favored Boston when it counted most. But it was never personal. Russell and Cousy held Baylor and West in high regard. Cousy even admitted to me once that he felt so bad for West back in the day, he almost wouldn't have minded if West got a ring at the Celtics' expense. No such sentiment existed between Magic and Bird. They started out as an intriguing subplot to Celtics-Lakers, but soon evolved into the headliners. So no one should have been surprised that in their first NBA game, Bird leveled Magic during a drive to the basket. The rookies stared each other down until teammates intervened. The dislike was real, and it was palpable. Both were hopeful of a rematch with the title at stake but they kept missing each other. In the 1980 finals, Magic won his first championship in finals MVP over his mentor, Dr. J, by playing all five positions and jumping center in the absence of the injured Kareem. There it is, it's over, and the most valuable player is Magic Johnson. 42 points, 15 rebounds, and... He received a further jolt of inspiration the morning of game six, when he learned Bird had trounced him for rookie of the year 63-3. to Bird won his first title the next year over the Houston Rockets. How do you feel about having come so close in college and now you're in the pros, you've got the big one? No, this is a very big one for us. We practiced awful hard this year. We stuck together. When going got tough, we came through. They came back on us. Magic would meet Dr. J's Sixers in the next two finals, splitting the pair. By the start of the 1983-84 season, Bird and Magic had been in the league for four years and had established themselves as two of the most compelling players in the game. Their flair for the dramatic, notching game winners in pressure situations, was part of it. 
But their unselfishness and desire to pass the ball resonated with fans and teammates alike, along with a new commissioner, David Stern. Stern made sure that clips of Magic and Bird's ingenious assists led the national NBA broadcasts. Sally's in. Mahorn's out. Bird to McHale. Cooper finds Magic. It's three on one. Look at that pass. Bird. Oh, look at that pass to Bird. Oh, my goodness gracious. Here come the Lakers again. Jonathan. Three on two. There it is. Oh, what a pass. Yeah. Their pass-first, shoot-later approach was a notable departure from some of the previous stars who hunted stats and chased scoring titles. It spawned a gorgeous era of basketball that piqued the interest of teenagers like Steve Kerr, who would go on to win five championships as a player and three more as coach of the Golden State Warriors. To me, that was sort of the... Um the apex of NBA fandom in my lifetime. Like, that's when it just became this uh, must-see spectacle. And so Stern deserves a lot of credit. Um, Bird and Magic, you know, you started seeing them in commercials, you know, uh, watching a football game, Magic Johnson and Bird come on on a Converse commercial. Like, that was new. That was different. head-to-head battle Bird and Magic craved in the finals still eluded them. But Stern recognized the league could capitalize on the rivalry between the glib, charismatic star in Los Angeles and the stoic, trash-talking star in Boston. So Stern issued a decree. No more Lakers versus Celtics. Make it Magic versus Larry. The league's PR machine was delighted to saturate the market with their intersecting storylines. Stern okayed putting their faces on the cover of the NBA Register, a prestigious honor usually reserved for veterans with multiple all-star nods. There had never been two players featured before, let alone players who were still on the rise. Let's not focus on what we always did in the past, Stern was fond of saying. Let's focus on what we'll do in the future. Spencer Haywood knows progress when he sees it. As you might remember from the last episode, his lawsuit eliminated the four-year college requirement to play in the NBA, opening the floodgates for players like Moses Malone, Kevin Garnett, and Kobe Bryant to jump directly from high school to the pros. Haywood recognized Stern's marketing play as a sign that new seeds of legitimacy had been planted. Oh, it definitely was a turning point. I mean, David Stern, he changed the game. He changed the whole marketing perception and the whole idea that the individual is... Because before, we were just robotic kind of team guys. Haywood explains that individuality was rare for pro basketball players in the 70s, right down to their attire. We went to the 72 All-Star game, or 73, and everybody was ordering this suit from the King Size store in Boston. And so we get to the dinner, and like six guys had on the same suits. In 1983, before he became commissioner, Stern negotiated a pivotal agreement between the owners and players that instituted revenue sharing and a salary cap, providing incentives for both players and owners to work together to increase league revenue. In essence, they became partners. The players agreed to it because they maintained their rights to free agency and were guaranteed 53% of the gross revenue. The owners signed off because it controlled spiking salaries, but also required the less lucrative franchises to spend money 
on player contracts. Lakers owner Jerry Buss declared that without that agreement, the league would have been out of business in two to three years. David Stern was a detail man, right down to the positioning of the silverware at the staff luncheons. He canvassed players and discovered they detested the pre-All-Star game banquet, so he scrapped it and created a private function room in which a buffet would be served and players and their families could come and go. Recalling the popularity of the slam dunk competition in the ABA, Stern and marketing whiz Rick Welts added it to the All-Star game in 1984 and then convinced companies like Schick, American Airlines, and a small sports drink company from Indiana called Gatorade to buy in. Stern also set out to eradicate the use of drugs, which had corroded the league's image in the 70s. He contacted law enforcement officials in each NBA city, attempting to track down who was selling drugs to his players. He set up free counseling and treatment centers. And when that didn't work, he implemented a strict substance abuse policy that banned repeat offenders for life. The growth, says Spencer Haywood, forever changed the league. So that was like the beginnings of the new era of basketball. Because prior to that, to be honest, we had decay in the NBA. Decay in a sense that we had been infested by drugs. I was a victim of it. We had, we had gotten stale. It was just, it was not a good look for basketball. It was not a good thing. Stern's plan for a new NBA produced astounding results. In 1979, the NBA's four-year deal with CBS was worth $74 million. But by 2002, the league had inked six-year deals with ABC, ESPN, and TNT, valued at over $4.6 billion. Rod Thorne says Stern was the key. David knew as much about TV, as much about advertising as much about the other aspects that go into the game other than the playing as anybody who ran those companies did. He knew everything about everything, that guy. He was unbelievable. The networks were amenable to promoting the NBA in large part because of the appeal of the rivalry between Magic and Larry. It was East Coast versus West Coast, Showtime fast break basketball versus blue collar lunch pail basketball. There was also another component that was impossible to ignore, black versus white. While Magic and Larry were aware of the racial narrative surrounding them, they were more engrossed with amassing championships. Still, racial strife was a given in the NBA, and some cities, like Boston, had a reputation that preceded them. The Celtics organization was one of the most progressive in sports history. They drafted the first black player, rolled out the first all-black starting five, and hired the first black head coach. But the city of Boston's deplorable behavior in the 70s, when violence erupted over forced busing, left a shameful mark. Black players on the Celtics learned to walk a fine line. ML Carr, who joined the Celtics in 1979, remembers the atmosphere. The infamous busing crisis had happened only a few years earlier. We knew where we were, but we knew that there could be changes. Byron Scott told me he hated playing in Boston more than any place. The Lakers were on high alert when they went out to dinner because they were concerned for their safety. At that particular time in the 80s, 
nobody wanted to talk about the racial tension that was going on, you know, but we all knew it was there. You know, you guys as writers knew it was there. Indeed, as a young reporter for the Boston Globe in the mid-80s, I listened while Lakers players recounted incidents of being harassed with racial slurs from ignorant fans in the stands and on the streets. Lakers players told me when they went to baggage claim at Logan Airport to pick up their luggage, they discovered missing items or defaced personal effects. Scott confirms this was an issue. I think it was Coop's bag, you know, who got kind of vandalized at one time. And we were like, only here, you know, only here. During the 1996-97 season, ML Carr served as both general manager and coach of the Boston Celtics, the first to hold both jobs in that franchise since the legendary Auerbach. Carr figures that while the fans loved him, they weren't ready for a black man wielding so much power in the franchise. The team won just 15 games and was clearly tanking in hopes of securing the rights to Tim Duncan. The goodwill for Carr evaporated as the Celtics continued to stumble. Carr tells me he became so concerned for his safety, he bought a gun and carried it into the arena on game days. I did bring uh, the gun with me on many occasions. When it got to the point when I was getting death threats all the time, because okay, well, you know what? I got to be smart. I got a family. I got my life. I got to make sure. So yes, I did. When he got... Uh, registered and uh, began to carry. And interesting enough, Jackie in a city that loved me actually in a lot of ways and a city that I forever loved, uh, I didn't feel safe. It's not that I'm saying racism was confined to Boston. It's not. But its NBA team happened to highlight a white player while LA's was led by a black player. And the battle lines were drawn by some based simply on that. It was against that backdrop that Magic and Bird, after years of waiting, finally lined up against each other in the 84 finals. Magic went into that series on top of the basketball world until Bird finally toppled his familiar foe. Suddenly, Bird was the man, the MVP and the finals MVP, while Magic had yet to win a regular season MVP, and now he was tied with Bird for titles. Their historic head-to-head finals was finally in the books, but a re-energized, and now massive, fan base wanted more. And they weren't the only ones. It was the first day of training camp to start the 1984-85 season, and Lakers coach Pat Riley was already agitated. No layups, he bellowed. He was personally insulted by criticisms that his team was soft and mentally unprepared to handle the physicality that the Celtics had used to level them in the 1984 finals. Magic's smile had vanished following that beatdown. His only mission during the long offseason was to eradicate the Lakers' performance from his mind. When he saw a clip of Boston's championship parade, he added another 500 jump shots to his workout. He was hell-bent on a rematch with Bird. And during the 1984-85 season, the stars aligned to make that possible. Celtics won 63 games, one more than the Lakers, and both teams enjoyed a relatively stress-free path to the finals. 
In game one, dubbed the Memorial Day Massacre, Boston buried LA 148 to 114. And that'll do it. Scott Whitman and Kevin McHale each scored 26. James Worthy had 20. No contest, game one, but it's just game one. Best of seven, give it to the Boston Celtics. Kareem was held to just 12 points and three rebounds, leading the pundits to immediately declare that the big man was past his prime and the Lakers were no match for the Celtics. Auerbach tossed his own log on the fire by declaring the Celtics no longer needed to double Kareem. Magic had submitted 19 points and 12 assists, but only one rebound. And Riley was quick to pounce on that. He sat his players in a darkened room and rolled the film for hours, replaying and pinpointing each moment that exposed the Lakers' insufficient focus and effort. Then things got personal. Riley called out both Magic and Kareem, his two leaders, in language that shocked the room. He even evoked Bird's name, turning to his point guard and sneering, you think that effort's going to get it done against your boy, Larry? Magic was used to Riley's volatility, but this was different. The coach had questioned his leadership, and that, he felt, had crossed the line. Riley knew it. He also knew if the Lakers fell to the Celtics in the finals again, he would lose his job. A three-hour, no-whistle practice followed the film session with elbows and bodies flying. In a resounding Game 2 Lakers win, Kareem had 30 points, 17 rebounds, three blocks, and eight assists. We're going to L.A., and the series is tied 1-1. One one. The final score, the Lakers 109, the Celtics 102, and they turn back every Boston effort. The Lakers went on to win the series in six games, and their 38-year-old captain was named Finals MVP. Magic, by the way, averaged 18.3 points, 14 assists, and 6.8 rebounds in the series. And Riley pulled him aside and whispered in his ear, we couldn't have done this without you. Magic took note of the deflated look on Bird's face as he walked off the hallowed parquet floor. Now he knows how I felt last season, Magic thought. While Magic and Larry still weren't exchanging pleasantries, their dislike for one another was slowly morphing into a grudging mutual respect. Robert Parrish, who had a front row seat to the dynamics between the two, noted the subtle shift. I thought it was very interesting to watch. And not to mention, I thought because that uneasiness between the two, I thought it pushed and motivated the other to try to outdo his rival. Because I know Larry followed the Lakers. And I found out later from Kareem that, that he and Magic did the same thing. They followed us in the standings. They read the papers. You know, did we win and how we playing? And I know we followed the Lakers. Because that was the team that we, like, gazed ourselves to and compared ourselves to. You know, that was the one team that we respected above all others. And I feel like... They felt the same way about us. Both Magic and Larry were Converse sneakers, creating endless marketing opportunities that could highlight their rivalry. Magic was never shy of the camera. When he wasn't palling around with other celebrities, you could see him smiling in a 7-Up ad. But Bird wasn't interested in collaborating. 
Yet, in the summer of 1985, shortly after the Lakers had exacted revenge on the Celtics, somehow Magic convinced Larry to tape a Converse commercial with him. Larry agreed on one stipulation. The commercial had to be shot in French Lick. Bird's Boston teammates were shocked that he'd chose endorsement dollars over his hardline mantra of refusing to consort with the enemy. Pat Riley was livid the commercial was filmed because, like Bird, he hated the idea of two rivals cozying up together. But during breaks in shooting, Bird and Magic discovered they had some things in common, among them Midwestern sensibilities and big families. Georgia Bird, Larry's mom, even beckoned Magic up the hill to her house to join them for lunch. In 1986, shortly after Bird won his third championship and third MVP, Converse released a different commercial with NBA luminaries hilariously and horribly trying to rap about what Converse shoes had done for them. Magic let off. The Converse weapon. That's the shoe. That's Magic do what he was born to do. Isaiah, Kevin McHale, Aguirre, and Nick star Bernard King followed. Then finally, Bird delivered the punchline in his Indiana drawl. You already know what you did for me. What? I walked away with the MVP. Bird and Magic learned to capitalize on the public's fascination with their relationship. But their primary objective never changed. To take what the other had. Bird's 86 title was against young twin towers Akeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson, not Magic. While collecting rings never gets old, in quiet moments, Bird confessed it just wasn't the same. The Lakers and Celtics were reunited in the 1987 finals in what turned out to be the last meeting of Bird and Magic on the biggest stage. LA made some changes turning its offensive focus away from Kareem and directly towards Magic. In midseason, the Lakers added rugged big man Michael Thompson, which proved important against Boston, as Bill Walton struggled through debilitating injuries all season, and Kevin McHale played in the finals with a broken foot. But it was Magic who would play the Kareem role in the critical moment, right down to his patented move. In the final seconds of game four, with the Lakers trailing by a point, Magic rose up and looped what he later termed a junior, junior hook over the outstretched arms of McHale, Parrish, and Bird. It was a shot that Kareem had taught him in practice, and he executed it over the best front line in basketball at the time, perhaps ever. Five seconds to go. Magic with a hook shot, scores with two. And the Celtics trail by one with two seconds to go. Bird got an open look at a corner three at the buzzer. Bird fires it. And the Lakers have won in Pat Riley, and the Lakers dance off the court. L.A. went on to clinch the series in six games. Magic was a unanimous MVP, and a somber Bird paid homage to his longtime foil in his postgame remarks. Magic's just a great basketball player. He's the best I've ever seen, you know. I, unbelievable. I don't know what to say. The animosity had all but melted away. After years of trying to outsmart and outwit each other, Magic and Bird had come to realize they were on this journey together, forever linked in an era that had taken pro basketball to dizzying heights. Bird relished his ability to set himself apart from the others with his diligence, 
perseverance, dedication to his craft, and his exceptional mental fortitude. But he had finally met his match in magic. Over the next four seasons, injuries reduced Bird to a shadow of himself. He missed all but six games of the 88-89 season after surgery on both heels. His back problems became inflamed and exacerbated, and he played in excruciating pain through the 1990-91 season before succumbing to surgery that June. The new contender in the East was Detroit, led by Isaiah Thomas. When he and Magic met in the 1988 finals, they decided to honor their friendship by kissing each other on the cheek before tip-off, to the dismay of many of their teammates. Even so, the series got gnarly in a hurry, especially when Magic delivered a forearm to Isaiah's jaw in game four. Isaiah says Magic was so competitive, it steamrolled their personal relationship during the finals. I think from a competitive standpoint, it was friendship off the court, but on the court, it's now, now you're really looked at as an equal. You looked at as a, as a rival. And so, yeah, the, the, the relationship, you know, it, it changed. The Lakers beat Detroit in 88, and the Pistons beat L.A. in 89. By then, Magic and Isaiah were barely speaking. By November of 1991, it was Michael Jordan and the Bulls who were champions. Bird was about six months from hanging up his Converse sneakers for good when Magic shocked the world by announcing he was HIV positive. Um, because of, uh the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. At the time, his diagnosis was viewed as a death sentence. As the basketball world reacted, word reached Magic that Isaiah was spreading rumors about his sexuality in light of his diagnosis, a charge Thomas vehemently denies to this day. In the book that I co-wrote with Magic and Bird entitled When the Game Was Ours, Magic eviscerated Isaiah, saying the rumors left him feeling like his one-time confidant had, quote, kicked me in the stomach. He declared their friendship would never be the same and claimed Thomas was left off the dream team because he would have poisoned the team's camaraderie. Thomas tells me he was blindsided by Johnson's venom, especially since he had seen Magic on numerous occasions and their interactions were friendly. But Jack, I've said this and I'm, I'm on record and uh, you, can, you can find anywhere well, this is what I've said about my friend Irvin. At that time, deeply hurt, deeply hurt, but also always came to the table with the understanding and the compassion that my friend, my brother, is going through something that none of us have no idea what he's going through. So whatever decisions that he's making and whatever he's saying, I forgive him because this is what I know about any of us. In those terrible times, no one is thinking clearly. No one is thinking straight. Mark Aguirre was caught in the middle. He was friends with both men and says when he talked with Thomas about Magic's diagnosis, it was always from a place of concern. And still, the rumors about Isaiah spread like wildfire. Irvin got it probably from someone who um, he believed in. And it was a lie, absolute lie. When Magic first learned of his HIV diagnosis, one of the first people he reached out to was Bird. He didn't want Larry to hear such devastating news from someone else. 
Bird was so shaken that he needed to steady himself once he hung up the phone. The Celtics played Atlanta the next night. For the first time in his life, Larry told me, he didn't feel like playing basketball. Magic's HIV scare ended all pretense of the antagonism between himself and Larry. It was no longer about basketball. It was about supporting a friend who had come to be an integral part of Bird's life. Here's Magic on ESPN telling the story of Bird calling him after the announcement. Called me and uh, we're talking. You know, it's just, how you doing? I heard about it. And uh, you can almost hear both of us with some uh, tears in our eyes. And I'm choked up because he did call me. And uh, when something happens to you, and then you find out who really your friends are and people who really care about you. As it turned out, Magic's HIV was manageable. He retired from the Lakers that November day, but returned to play in the 1992 All-Star Game the 1992 Olympics, and for 32 Laker games during the 1995-96 season. Ironically, it was Bird whose time had run out. In August of 1992, shortly after he returned from playing for the Dream Team in Barcelona, he announced his retirement and proclaimed it one of the happiest days of his life. The ravaging pain in his back had become too debilitating to continue. He underwent fusion surgery in March of 1993, and was told he could never play basketball again. The final ledger on Magic versus Larry clearly favors the Lakers star. Magic won five championships to Bird's three and held a two-to-one advantage in their head-to-head finals. Yet the numbers don't begin to explain the magnitude of this rivalry, the depths to which these two men pushed each other in ways no one else could and the boost they provided to the NBA at a time when pro basketball desperately needed a lift. And Robert Parrish says that's not all the two stars did. Those two made it okay for to be friends with someone that don't look exactly like me or exactly like you. They made it cool to be friends, not only friends, but close friends. So I, I thought their relationship did wonders for race relations. After their playing days were over, Bird and Magic hardly faded into the woodwork. They rose to prominence in the NBA as TV sets became essential to every family living room. And they remained visible figures as Michael Jordan took the game global. Larry was coach of the Indiana Pacers for three seasons, even leading them to a finals before moving into the front office. Magic flirted briefly with coaching himself before broadcasting games for NBC and buying an ownership stake with the Lakers. Later, he even became their lead front office executive, helping to lure LeBron James to L.A. Although Bird still valued his privacy, if the price was right, he'd go on the road with Magic to hold private events for corporate sponsors, thrilling intimate crowds with stories of their rivalry and resulting friendship. Bird also quietly assisted many young players in his retirement, but stubbornly refused to divulge who they were. Kobe Bryant described to me in detail a conversation he had with Bird about mental toughness. But when I called Larry to ask him about it, he simply said, that's private. He would probably prefer us not to know about the time he agreed to meet with a young Dirk Nowitzki, 
who was still finding his way in Dallas and playing for former Bird teammate and close friend Rick Carlisle. We came with the Mavericks to a game in Indy, and and uh, Rick asked me, he's like, hey, do you want to go to dinner with, with Larry? And I said, what? Of course, I'm there. Tell me when and where. And so we took a couple of our other teammates, and we went to dinner with, uh, with Larry Legend, which was super cool just to... I mean, just to hear him talk about how he did it, how what his approach was, and some of the stories that he told. Uh, it's just the league was different at the time, and but what an amazing player. When Kevin Durant was playing for Oklahoma City, team general manager and Massachusetts native Sam Presti arranged a call with Bird, who Durant had mentioned he admired. I got on the phone with him and just talked game, talk, practice, and he, he gave me some gems on, you know, how to practice and how to approach shooting rounds and stuff like that, and it helped me out a lot. The best advice that Bird dispensed, says Durant, was how to prepare so thoroughly that nothing that happened in a game would surprise him. He told me to practice, to go through every rep like I would in a game. You know, I was doing some of that stuff, but it, I started thinking about it more afterwards. And, and, and I, it was a conscious effort of mine after he told me that. And um, so, you know, to know that he went hard as he can every time he stepped on the floor and to hear that from Bird at that age, was um, it was cool. Magic was more overt regarding his interactions with the young players. He spent hours counseling Kobe, offering advice on everything from the Lakers' mystique to business outside of basketball, and then often sharing his insights with the media. A year after that, in 2017, Magic and Isaiah reconciled in a made-for-TV event that left both men embracing and weeping. By then, they were long retired, with new champions having stolen the spotlight. Magic and Bird's ties to one another remained strong some 35 years after their last joint finals. When fans stop Bird in the street, they ask, seen Magic lately? When Magic does speaking engagements, the first question is not about Kareem or James Worthy. It's, what's Larry really like? As Bird often says, we're stuck with each other. The difference now is they don't mind anymore. While all the drama among the league's elite unfolded in the late 80s, a young Michael Jordan was paying close attention, especially to Bird, whom he felt a certain kinship with in regards to how they attacked the game. According to Rick Fox, who played with Bird in Boston and was mentored by Jordan as a young Tar Heel attending MJ's summer camp, the two stars viewed competition in exactly the same manner. In that era, man, it was, it was like they were hunters. They were sharks. They were, they were looking for every little edge they could get. Just like if you just even tried to get their attention, to try to get their approval or their validation, you were showing a sign of weakness. There are seminal moments in a player's career when he recognizes he's been invited into the club. Jordan says his moment was the 1986 playoffs when he torched the Celtics for 63 points and Bird declared, that was God disguised as Michael Jordan. I mean, when Bird gave me that comment, you know, that was the biggest comment I've ever received in my life. And that was the type of respect that he gave me. But we never really, you know, I never really called him or embraced. It was that type of respect that 
you know, I didn't have to talk to him. I wanted to maintain that competitive, you know, edge that we had against each other. Bird would never call up Jordan and share any of his secrets. But Jordan was taking meticulous mental notes on how both Bird and Magic ascended to the NBA's elite and how it created numerous opportunities for income outside of basketball. Then he shattered the mold with the creation of his own iconic Air Jordan brand that changed the earning power for NBA players forever. That's next on the Icons Club. This is the Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. I wrote and reported this podcast. Story editing by Justin Barrier. The show was executive produced by Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. Our producers are Bobby Wagner, Noah Malale, Jonathan Kerma, Isaac Lee, Justin Barrier, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. The theme music was composed by Devin Rinaldo. The rest of the music in this series is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Jack McCluskey and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening.